You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so I remember the uh, first time I read a commentary on the scriptures, explaining the scriptures. It's etched into my memory. Um, I was at a friend's house, and I'd happened to, to look and glance over at this old bookshelf and saw a book on the shelf. Now, you probably, a little bit of important context here was at the time I was a high school dropout uh, who, you know, got past my high school proficiency exam and was on a course to, you know, to win the world uh, with no de- degree. And... Um, so I, I, I did not care for books. In fact, I remember when people would say, oh, the book is so much better than the movie. I'd be like, that's nice, but you're talking about books here. Are we, are we on the same page? Uh, books were something I did not enjoy. Um, but anyways, there was something about this book on the bookshelf that, that caught my eye. And so I remember walking over to the bookshelf, turning my head, and seeing on the binding these words, the Gospel of Mark. And something in that moment sparked my interest. And when I opened it, the first thing I read was the introduction. And in the introduction, this commentary was plainly describing that Jesus was the initially unrecognizable king, who was still king nonetheless. And the author told a story that, to be fair, I've told a time or two, or maybe even more than twice, of Peter the Great. Uh, the Russian emperor in the 17th and 18th century. And he retold the story of this king who left his throne, who disguised himself, who laid aside all of his royal apparel and all the comforts of being a king, and he dressed himself as a common laborer, and he went throughout Europe into Holland and into England, learning shipbuilding on the docks, side by side with common men who had no idea who they were standing and working next to. He went on uh, to describe this. He said the desire for a navy moved him to humility. He returned after with the knowledge of, to build ships and ruled again from his throne. Yet, in his time in the shipyards, he was no less an emperor with a hammer in his hands. And this is what we see in Jesus' appearance here in Mark. As this king emerges out of the wilderness, Jesus moved in humility, by the desire to redeem and to restore humanity and to establish his healing kingdom here on earth. He set aside his royal apparel. He set aside the royal comforts of heaven and stepped down into the discomfort of our humanity. He came to us. And one of the earliest visions of Christ that truly gripped me was this picture right here that we're reading of this morning in Mark picture of a humble king stepping down into our world and stepping out of the obscurity of the wilderness, and yet with no less dignity, 
and yet with no less royal authority, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe and belong. Now, at the time, I did not understand the significance of this passage. And if I could be honest with you, I probably still don't today. Uh, I didn't understand the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy or the way that Jesus would establish his rule or this interaction between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John the baptizer, or really any of the dynamics of what was going on in this story. But what I did know is this was a king that I needed to follow. This, this was a king that deserved my allegiance. But now as inspiring as this moment was for me, it also plunged me into a deep and ongoing struggle that maybe some of you can associate with. See, what Mark shows us, and really what the entire scriptures show us, is that the world is ruled by one wise and gracious and capable king, and he's not you. He's not you. I was, and I continue to this day, to be confronted with the reality that if Jesus is king, I am not. If Christ is king, then I am not, and you are not either. The pronouncement that the kingdom of God is near means that my delusion of self-sovereignty is no longer safe within his realm. The pronouncement of the kingdom of God coming near means that my pride and my capability of ruling and reigning in my own life is no longer safe. This pronouncement means that my dreams of autonomy and living the autonomous life is no longer safe within his realm. See, when Christ emerges into the territory of our hearts, he takes the rightful place of the throne. He takes the place of the throne of our hearts. The ushering in of the kingdom of God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ is by nature the ushering in of conflict. You can't help but feel the conflict that's occurring in this passage. The kingdom of God is near. Repent, turn, and believe. Paul Tripp would put it this way. The Bible really is a story of kingdoms in conflict. I'll wait for this to come up. Are we, do we have this to project? Good to go? Okay, it's coming. The Bible really is a story of kingdoms in conflict, and that battle rages on the field of your heart. It rages for control of your soul. The two kingdoms in conflict cannot live in peace with one another. There will be no truce. Each kingdom demands your loyalty and your worship. Each kingdom promises you life, but one kingdom leads you to the king of kings and the other sets you up as king. Jesus came to free you and me from the bondage of our own self-serving kingdom purposes. He came to help us understand that his grace is not given to make our little kingdom purposes work, but to invite us to a much, much better kingdom. This is the invitation that is being extended to us this morning into a much, much better kingdom. Amen? Okay, today we are going to continue in our journey through the gospel of Mark. We're going a little bit slow. It will pick up pace, I promise. We will get through this book this year. Uh, but as we look at these two passages, there are three things that we want to focus on. It's the message of the king, the realm of the king, and the summons of the king. And we're going to look first at the message of the king. The message of the king. Now, as Jesus returns triumphantly from his battle in the wilderness, going toe-to-toe with the devil 
and emerging in victory, he comes declaring a message. Now, this is very significant, so pay attention here. These are the first recorded words that Jesus is recorded speaking in the first, chronologically first, recorded gospel. So all of Jesus' words are significant. Don't hear me wrong here, but these have special significance. This is Jesus' inaugural speech of sorts. This is, this is Jesus going public as king. And so if, if first impressions mean anything, the question is, what's he going to say? What's he all about? What makes this king different? What makes this king the kind of king that we should worship? What makes this kind of king the kind of king that we give our allegiance to? Well, Mark tells us that Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. What is Jesus about? Jesus is about the gospel. See, John the baptizer is said to have preached. But in contrast, Mark tells us that Jesus comes proclaiming not just a message, but a message of good news. In fact, that's what this word gospel means. It means the good tidings of great joy. Now, when we hear this word gospel, uh, we're probably, what comes to mind is probably spiritual things, like Jesus and good news and that sort of the Christianity, or maybe we think of gospel music or, or that sort of thing. But for the first century reader, this would have had more political and historic meaning initially. We've already talked about the political meaning, you know, the pronouncement of the good news of Caesar Augustus that preceded the incarnation of Jesus Christ, but it also had historic significance. An example of this gospel announcement is found in the history of the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC, so centuries before Jesus's incarnation. History tells us that when Persia, the Persian Empire, invaded Greece, it was a given that the Persians were going to conquer them. But Greece does this strange thing. The Greeks surprised everyone by not only fighting off the Persians and defending their land, but also having victory over their enemy. And afterwards, sent messengers, or literally the word was evangelists, to run through the, the nation and run into these cities proclaiming the victory. The good news of an event that meant something significant for the people that were being told. And so the legend is that Pheidippides, I think his name is pronounced, Pheidippides, ran approximately 25 miles. It's where we get the word marathon, or really the concept of marathon today. He runs 25 miles into Athens to proclaim to this anxiously waiting city the news of the outcome of the battle. And so imagine this scene. The people are huddled up in Athens, anxiously awaiting to hear what has happened on the battlefield. And all of a sudden, they see through the clearing one individual running towards them with his hands waving, but they can't hear him yet. They just know that his presence means something significant for them. And so they're like quietly listen, listening for his, his voice, listening to what he's going to proclaim to the city. And the closer that he gets, they see his arms raised, and he's calling out with a loud voice, the battle is won. The, the victory is ours. The enemy is defeated. And the city begins to cheer. The city is now filled with hope because of what has been accomplished. And this is the sort of picture that the first century reader would have had in their minds when they hear this word gospel. Their minds would go back to the history of the battle and marathon and things like this. 
And this is the, the sort of picture that we should have in our minds as well. Why? Because the message that Jesus proclaims, and listen, is not about what we must do in order to find victory in our life. The message of Jesus Christ is not about what we should do to find favor with God. The message of Jesus Christ is not good news. I'm sorry, not good advice, but it is good news. Amen? Mark is setting the scene here of what is, is really the significance of this term. When Christ emerges from the wilderness and into the city of Galilee, it is with the message of what God has done on behalf of humanity, a message of victory over the enemy, a message of this beautiful, renewing kingdom breaking into our present. See, Mark is setting the scene for what Jesus was in the midst of accomplishing, what Jesus was in the midst of accomplishing during his ministry. You see, we read all the way back in the book of Genesis, and Mark is alluding to pictures here of creation and the fall. There's little hints that draw our minds and our memories back to the garden. But all the way back in Genesis, we're told that God places an individual named Adam in the garden of Eden to be God's human representative. In fact, he commissions him as a king, as a vassal king. He says, this is all yours. Cultivate this land and have dominion over it. Rule and reign wisely. But what we read of almost immediately is when he is faced with temptation, the temptation of the devil, he loses. He's defeated. And as a result, he's driven out of the garden and into the wilderness of the world. And with that being driven out of the garden, he ushers in brokenness for humanity. When Adam emerged from battle, he emerges in defeat. His life and his ministry usher in bad news for humanity. But Mark reveals here a greater Adam, greater Adam that is emerging, who now willingly journeyed into the wilderness, who willingly journeyed into battle with the devil, and now emerges from that battle with the enemy, not in defeat, but in victory. The life and ministry of Adam ushers in bad news. The life and ministry of Jesus Christ ushers in good news. The Apostle Paul would, would take these, these huge concepts and put them to be, beautifully together in Romans chapter 5. He says this, For if because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The ministry of Adam means bad news. The ministry of Jesus Christ means even better news. Really good news for humanity. Now you think about this. To the self-sufficient individual, and we're Americans, so we're self-sufficient individuals. That's what's been impressed into us from our waking days. 
to the self-sufficient individual who sees no need for rescue from their sin, to the self-sufficient individual who sees no need for help in, in their conflict with the forces of evil, who see no need for grace in their life, who see no need for a greater king than themselves. Well, this doesn't seem like very good news. But the one who looks within, to the one this morning who looks within and finds defeat and finds weariness and finds brokenness, who realizes that they lack what it takes to find victory, to the one who's not feeling very victorious today, to the one who looks within and finds the lack and lacks what it takes to overcome sin and temptation. To the one who looks within and finds lack, that they lack what it takes to please God. This is good news of great joy. This is good news to be received by faith. This is the message of this king, amen? The second thing we see in this, in this account is the reign of the king, the reign of the king. See, what Jesus announces is that his appearance brings the kingdom of God. The good news is the pronouncement of the kingdom of God. That's what he's pronouncing here. But Jesus doesn't just come as a representative of the, of the kingdom. As Jesus appears on the scene, Jesus is the king that embodies the kingdom. That is why Jesus proclaims the, not just the king is near, but the kingdom of God has come near. But we need to ask ourselves this morning, what does that mean? What do we mean by the kingdom of God? I think we throw that term around quite a bit in the church. We say, oh, so-and-so, so kingdom-minded. Or, or we, we, we got to seek first the kingdom of God. Or that's not how it works within the kingdom of God. But what do we mean when we say the kingdom of God? Well, for most of us, we're probably thinking in terms spatially that the kingdom of God is a place and a realm. So here's the kingdom, here's outside the kingdom, here's the kingdom, here's the boundaries of the kingdom. But what we need to remember this morning is that there are no boundaries to the sovereignty of God. In fact, Abraham Kuyper would have put it this way, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Christ says, mine, 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 mine. A pastor and theologian named Stephen Um says that we need to think broader than territories. This is how he defines the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom of God is the rank, rule, reign, dominion, and royal authority of God. The rank, rule, reign, dominion, and royal authority of God. This is very important for us to understand this now. Because as, as Mark is introducing these terms, these are terms that are going to show up later on in the story, and we need to have our, our context and our bearings for what Jesus is going to con continue to proclaim all throughout the narrative of Mark. So simply, to be in God's kingdom means to come under God's good and gracious rule. To be within the kingdom of God means to come under God's good and gracious rule. See, remember, in Genesis, humanity was broken when it stepped out from underneath God's rule. Adam and Eve said, we're going we're to go our own way. We're going to take matters into our own hands. 
We're going to rule our own lives. And humanity spiraled out of control. And yet Jesus came to bring healing and renewal, to bring us back into his kingdom by bringing us back under the good and gracious rule of God. Amen? Now, all throughout the Gospel of Mark, we are going to see Jesus spending significant amounts of time explaining the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is like, but in ways that are always going to challenge our assumptions. In ways that, we're going to, that are going to cause us to be like, wait, what are you talking about? For instance, in Mark chapter 4, and Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out its large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in the shade. And people are thinking, what are you talking about? We're expecting a king who's going to go to the throne and break us free from Roman rule and occupation. Why are you talking about a mustard seed, Jesus? Birds, goodness gracious, is this the guy we've been waiting for? Is this the Messiah? Do we have reason, as even John the baptizer would ask, do we have reason to start looking elsewhere? See, people will always have to reevaluate how they expect the kingdom of God to break into the world. And you will constantly have to reevaluate how you see the kingdom of God breaking into your life as well. In fact, this is happening very early in the narrative. It is no coincidence that Mark mentions the good news of the kingdom of God, the pronouncement of victory, in the very same breath that he pronounces the sad news that John the baptizer just got arrested. Think about this. Just as things are getting going, John, the forerunner of the kingdom, the significant forerunner of the kingdom, was just handed over, arrested, and placed in Herod's prison. Now, if I'm reading this right, at this point, Jesus had one follower, and he just got taken out. One guy, and boom, he's gone. Hardly a victory to begin with. But this is important to catch because Mark is showing us that the kingdom won't be ushered in through things like political conquest and, and military brute force and power and manipulation or really any way that we would imagine and assume that a kingdom should be established. But it will be ushered in in a way that appears like weakness and defeat. If you miss this now, you will miss this throughout the narrative. That the kingdom of God will be ushered in in a way that will appear like weakness and defeat. This is key. It says that John is handed over. The language that Mark uses here is the very same language to describe later when Jesus is handed over. John is delivered up now, but later we'll see in Mark that Jesus will be delivered over. And so this begs the question for us this morning, how is Jesus if it already begins in seeming defeat, how is Jesus going to establish his rule and his reign? This is Jesus' inauguration. How is he going to do it? And here's the answer, by sacrifice. By sacrifice. 
as a crucified king who wears a crown of thorns. And what we're beginning to see early on is that the symbol of Christ's rule and reign is not a royal crown. And the symbol of Christ's rule and reign is not a scepter in hand. The symbol of Christ's rule and reign is nothing less than the symbol of the cross. And Mark wastes no time from the very beginning, beginning to sketch out the dimensions of the cruciform life. Introducing us to this key concept that the way of the kingdom is the way of the cross. That we find victory through sacrifice. That the way to life is through death. This is the king, and this is the case for the king. But John shows us that this is also the case for those who follow this king. Jesus, in a few chapters, will call his disciples, and subsequently to us as well, if you're going to follow me, you must take up your cross and follow me. The message of the king, the reign of the king, but lastly, the summons of the king. The summons of the king. According to, to Shakespeare, King Henry IV once prayed a prayer to the God of sleep. This is what he prayed poetically. How many thousand of my poorest subjects are at this hour asleep? O oh, sleep, O oh, gentle sleep, canst thou, O oh, partial sleep, give thy repose? To the wet sea boy in an hour so rude, in the calmest and most stillest night, with all appliances and means to boot, deny to a king? Then happy low, lie down. Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. And this is interesting. While the lowliest men in his kingdom, even the most vile people in his kingdom, are afforded a good night's sleep. Here lies King Henry IV, restless, sick, burdened by the weight of it all. Here is the king, literally jealous of the poorest subjects in his kingdom, because he, night and day, must bear the weight of the crown. And this has really been a repeated idea throughout history. It's the weight of the crown. We can begin to imagine that being a king or a queen was an extremely rewarding existence. That being king or being queen meant a life of ease, a life of benefit, having riches, having servants. You just tell people what to do all day and they serve you night and day. But when you pull back the curtain of history and you begin to see into the private life of monarchs, what we actually begin to see is that it was a crushing weight that many kings and queens wanted out from underneath the weight of the crown, that really wasn't something to desire, that really only the craziest and sickest of men loved the crown. Why? Because it brought more grief and more pain and more distress than it did good. Why? Because it was crushing. Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. If you think about it today, this is really what we discover in our endeavors to be self-sovereign individuals. This is what we discover when we attempt to rule and reign in our own lives. When we attempt to choose what is best for ourselves. 
when we attempt to determine the direction of our own lives, when we set ourselves up as the exclusive authority over our minds, the exclusive authority over our bodies, the exclusive authority over our hearts and our relationships and the things in our lives. But what we inevitably discover is that we buckle under the pressure. The weight of the crown eventually crushes us. The weight of the crown crushes us emotionally. The weight of the crown crushes us spiritually. It takes its toll on our bodies. It takes its toll even on our relationships. In fact, some of our deepest fears, some of our deepest anxieties, some of our, our deepest frustrations come out of the times in our lives when we are convinced that God is not in control. That when Jesus is not king, when we are feeding the illusion that we are capable kings, that we are that one wise, gracious, capable we buckle, we fold, we're crushed. This is why Jesus' summons is so gracious and so life-giving. You see, when Jesus says, repent and believe, what Jesus is doing is he's calling us into freedom once again. He's calling us back into the shalom of the garden. The peace and shalom that was lost through sin, Jesus restores. And he's calling us back into that place. Now, for some of us, when we hear that word repentance, we don't think life-giving. We don't think peace. We hear that, we hear that word repentance, and we, we imagine that, that individual on the, on the side of the street with the megaphone screaming at us, not really caring who's listening or who's responding, but just concerned about getting their message out. We think of condemnation. We think of guilt. We think of shame, we think of isolation, we think of rejection. But what we need to remember this morning is repentance is not a spiritual slap. Repentance is not a, a, a condescending reprimand. What Jesus is calling for when he calls his people to repent, when he calls you to repent, what Jesus is simply saying is switch allegiance. You need to switch allegiance. When Jesus says, turn to me and trust, that's what repentance and belief, turn and trust. What Jesus is doing is he's extending an invitation to come under, out from underneath the crushing weight of the crown and to find life and joy under God's reign. He's saying, come find freedom. I know that you are dying right now under the weight of self-sovereignty. Come find life. Come find grace. Come find forgiveness. Come find eternity. Turn and trust. The question, especially for those of us who maybe have some apprehensions this morning, the question is, how can we trust this king? Why would we trust him? Why would we switch allegiance? And what Mark will go on to show us as we walk through this narrative, that because Jesus bore the crushing weight, not just as the king, but this is a king who bore the crushing weight of the cross as well. When Jesus says, repent and believe, he is not waving a scepter in his hand. When Jesus says, repent and believe, he is bearing the scars of a crown of thorns, a crown that he took up for you and for me. And so how will you respond today? The call is very simple. 
and yet means a world, an eternity of a difference for those who respond. Jesus says the kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe. Turn your attention and turn your allegiance to Jesus Christ. You can trust this crucified king. Amen?